Ha-ha! We're entering into the bad place. Numbers 35. That won't be the first time I do that. Numbers chapter 35. Look at verse 1. Now Yahweh spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. Does any of that ring a bell for us? Yes. What? Sorry, I just wrote out numbers. Go for it. 18, so. Why is this important? The location. Oh, they had just, uh, they had just asked for passage from... Okay, they'd asked for passage, they'd come through. They'd asked for, uh, for, for passage and been denied, and, uh, and they had a, the Moabites came up the, uh, came up against them you know, with war, but I believe that allowed them to defeat the Moabites. Well, look at it real quick. Where's Moab? On the map. <laughs> it's right I here. It's this map. region right here. Gotcha. Okay. Now, what's interesting is, is where did this whole situation with Deuteronomy take place? It took place right here. But notice the special designation that it gives you here. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. question we need to ask ourselves is, where is Jericho? Notice how, how far the geography of Moab stretches in this. It doesn't get into Ammon yet. Jericho, they're opposite the Jordan. You know what that tells you? It's part and parcel right next to where Deuteronomy was delivered as an address. Because once they cross the Jordan, they're into the promised land. Does everybody see that? And the conquest starts. What has to happen before they can cross? Moses has to what? Moses has to die. Moses has to die. He's the last one of the unbelieving generation, and he is not allowed to inherit the land. So notice the timing is about the same. Now, I just point that out to you to show you the continuity that's going on here. But verse 2, command the sons of Israel that they give to the Levites from the inheritance of their possession cities to live in. So notice, the Levites didn't just live at the temple. It wasn't like they had bunk beds upon bunk beds and stinky showers and stuff like that. That's not what was going on. They all had cities that they resided in. It says here, and you shall live, sorry, you shall give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. The city shall be theirs to live in, and their pasture lands shall be for their cattle and for their herds and for all their beasts. Did they own things? Yeah, absolutely. They own things. That wasn't forbidden. The fact that they were not to be mastered by those things. Those things were not the in hope that they had, but they still needed to live somewhere and they still needed to have a means of, of, um, Working the land, if you want to say that. Remember, not all Levites were priests. Okay? Only those that were descended from the line of Aaron were priests. There were many other Levites. Moses was a Levite. So you might have somebody who's a Levite living in those situations, and yet you have only those of Aaron that are going to be the priests. Maybe somebody came from Moses in that. So notice, they've got a dwelling place to go to. It says here, uh, let's see, it should be for their cattle, for their herds, for all their beasts. Verse 4, the pasture lands of the city, which you shall give the Levites, shall extend from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits around. That's 1,500 feet. Is that a good plot of land? Sounds like a, a fun little plot of land to me. Notice it says here, verse 5, you shall also measure outside the city on the east, 2,000 cubits. There's 3,000 feet. And on the south side, 2,000 cubits, and on the west side, 2,000 cubits, and on the north side, 2,000 cubits, with the city in the center, this shall become theirs as pasture lands for the city. The cities which you shall give to the Levites shall be the six cities of 
refuge. Now notice that. Not only did the Levites live there amongst that, but if there were situations of manslaughter, if there were situations of accidental injustice that took place amongst the nation, then those people who were involved in that were exiled into that situation, not in like a bad way, but in a way in order to preserve their life so that the person, you know, like they have, if you're out there cutting wood and you swing back and your axe head flies off and jacks somebody in the head and they fall down dead, this person can go to the city of exile. That had to have happened in order for God to want to point that out or he knew it was going to take place at some point. You see what I'm saying? How strange is that? Accidents Accidents happen in that situation. Notice it's nobody's fault. It was a complete accident. And so by getting knocked out like that, they've got to have some place to go. Why? Because that person's wife is going to want justice. And that person's parents might want justice. And that person's uncle's baby's daddy's mother might want justice. Whatever it is. They might want some sort of retribution in that. And vengeance could take place. Well, get them out of the way. Let temper simmer down kind of thing. They live somewhere else. Well, notice they live amongst the Levites is where they go. Which you shall give for the manslayer to flee to. And in addition to them... You shall give 42 cities. All the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall be 48 cities together with their pasture lands. As for the cities which you shall give from the possessions of the sons of Israel, you shall take more from the larger and you shall take less from the smaller in order to balance it out. Each shall give some of his cities to the Levites in proportion to his possession which he Inherits. Now, I can't remember in particular. I want to say. Now they don't tell us. Okay. I thought that I have a map somewhere that actually talks about where these possible dwellings could have been amongst the cities. But, but regardless, it's not there. So anyway, what we see is the fact that even though the Lord is Israel's inheritance, or sorry, the priest's inheritance, that doesn't mean that all Levites found themselves in that same situation. They had cities. They had pasture lands. They were set up to develop and thrive, and that portion came out of the inheritance that Israel uh, had there. Now, what that means is, is that the people were supplying for the priests and for that tribe. So it was a very selfless thing. It was a very communal living thing. If you're familiar with economic terms, it's not socialism. It's a distributism, if we understand what that means. Distributism is a widespread ownership that each individual has in an economic process. That's not socialism. It's the complete opposite. So uh, don't ever get caught up in the whole argument that the Bible preaches socialism. It doesn't. It preaches distributism. It's a completely different deal. Uh, Anyway, moving back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18. So notice that they have something there to show. They did own land. They did have that uh, around the cities. Verse 5 of chapter 18. For Yahweh your Elohim has chosen him and his sons from all your tribes to stand and serve in the name of the Lord forever. Now, if a Levite comes from any of your towns throughout Israel where he resides and comes whenever he desires to the place which Yahweh chooses. Now notice, this is a voluntary situation. Coming to this place, wherever he comes from, notice it's the place where Yahweh desires. This is where we talked about the theology of sacred spaces. Anytime it's brought up, Yahweh will determine when and where he is worshipped. He says here, uh, a place which the Lord chooses, verse 7, then he shall serve in the name of Yahweh his Elohim, like all his fellow Levites who stand there before Yahweh. They shall eat equal portions, except what they receive from the sale of their fathers 
estate. In other words, any inheritance that they would have received from a previous generation can, can stand uh, to help them in that situation. But the idea is, is it's not to elevate them uh, in any situation. Does that make sense? It's not to give them special priority or they wouldn't use their wealth in order to lord it over the people of which they're ministering to. It's, it's to pull that completely off the table. So that deals with the whole idea of the priests coming in again and the idea of how they offer worship and that they should be cared for uh, is what's going on here. Now we move to the last part of our little chiasm that we have here dealing with what eventually becomes the subject of the prophets taking place. And that starts in verse 9 from 9 to 22 is what it deals with. I doubt we're going to be able to get through the whole thing today because we got five minutes, but that's never stopped us before. Verse 9. When you enter the land which Yahweh your Elohim gives you. So notice, it's giving you a time. And we see that a lot throughout here. When you enter the land, when you enter the land, that's the time to implement these things. They got a whole laundry list of things to restructure their entire community when they enter the land. Notice what it says. You shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. Let's spell this out a little bit. When they come into the land for conquest, remember, these weren't fighters. So Yahweh is going to have to fight for them. Everything that is deemed horrible that the pagans have involved themselves in. So the land of Canaan, all of this stuff right here, they are controlled by little g-gods. They've been influenced. They're full of idolatry. They've got all kinds of messed up philosophies that are going on. You're to have nothing to do with that whatsoever. Does anybody know how the people are to enter into the land and therefore not let those things influence them? Annihilate everyone and everything. Annihilate everyone and everything. Or what's known in Hebrew as harem. And you have to get that, that I have a cold, it's winter, back behind it. Harem is what it is. And it means utter destruction of everything you see. And we talked about this a while back that that seems pretty brutal because it's man, woman, child, animal, everything to be wiped off the face of the earth. You mean children? Yes, even children as much as we can't understand or wrap our minds around that whole situation. Why is that? Because, number one, the adults of that nation have invited the wrath of God. That's exactly what this is. Israel is coming in as God's disciplinary tool upon these people. What does that tell you? It tells you that God, at some point that we must not have documented in the scriptures, made himself known to these people, worked with these people, laid forth truth for these people, and they wholeheartedly reject it. That shouldn't surprise us. Because we see that in, in Genesis chapter 6. We see the idea that they're given an understanding of how they should live by their conscience. And when God searches the hearts of man and finds out that they're only evil continually. This is the idea that gives way to the sons of God, the daughters of women, the Nephilim, the mighty men of renown. And then all of a sudden there has got to be a judgment on the earth to cleanse this pollution of the gene pool. So important for us to, to, to understand that God has no problem exacting justice in situations uh, but he's lenient. I mean, it seems like in a lot of situations, he actually, it kind of pictures it like a cup that is waiting to be filled. And it's not until that cup is brimming over uh, that destruction takes place. We know this with the whole situation with Jonah. You know, go and preach to the Assyrians and let them know. You know, go preach to Nineveh and let them know. And he preached to them and they repented. And God withheld his wrath. Awesome. They responded. They were sensitive to the word of God and it changed. Guess what happened 100 years later? They weren't sensitive at that moment, and they fell. God destroyed them. So we shouldn't be surprised by some of that stuff. How do you keep a, a, a society, God's people, Israel, from being influenced by all of these pagan, demonic, um, 
little g gods and their and their I don't know what else to say. Their philosophies will lead people astray. You have to completely wipe out the notion that anything was ever there previously. Uh, so it says here, verse 10, let's look at the, the list and then we'll uh, wrap up in verse 13. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. That's the very first thing that he brings up. Now, if you're familiar with your history, you check out Jeremiah 32, you find out that Israel actually succumbed to this later, and they were giving their children on an altar, burning them to the god Molech. In fact, if you ever hear of Molech, and you should pay very close attention to Molech, don't get on YouTube and type out Molech. People are crazy. Uh, but if you do some research on Molech and some of the things that go on in those situations, it's always about child sacrifice in order to appease a deity. Always. Molech's brought up three times. Uh, to deal with that situation. If you want me to give it to you real quick, Leviticus 18 verse 21 uh, is a situation where that's dealt with. And Molech was a god over the Ammonites. So notice, it was a nearby affair. Ammon's right here. Which whenever they came in and they destroyed Og of Bashan, Og controlled all of this stuff. Sihon controlled the stuff down here. Og controlled all this stuff. And they took it over. They dealt with it. They were to get rid of everything. Tear, tear down every altar. Tear down every pole. Get rid of all of these writings. Destroy their structures. Set everything on fire. And, and walk away from it. And have nothing to do with it whatsoever. Why? Because if you don't, you're actually going to end up a few generations down the line burning your children because you think that's a way to earn the favor of God. That's insane. That's absolutely insane. Uh, how about this one? Let's turn to this one real quick. Second Kings 23. Second Kings 23. Let's see here. Verse 10. And this is good because King Josiah comes in as the king later on here. 23 verse 10. Uh, sorry, 23.4 speaks of Hilkiah, the high priest. Let me see here. Find out where this king is. Let's see here. Uh, verse 9. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not go up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem. That's the sacred space where they should have went, where they're constantly told about uh, when the Lord chooses that space. But they ate unleavened bread among their brothers, which they were not to do. Verse 10. He also defiled Topheth. Uh, Topheth is interesting because Toph is the Hebrew word that means drum. Why is it that it was called that place? Because whenever they would burn their children there in the altar of Molech, they would beat the drums really loud so they couldn't hear their kids scream as they died. That's the reason why. So he also defiled Topheth, which is the valley of the sons of Hinnom, that no man might make his own might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire for Molech. It was a place of child sacrifice. And real quick, another phrase you need to be aware of there that, that is very prominent, especially when you deal with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five, six, and seven, is the sons of him, the valley of the son of Hinnom. It later became the trash dump of Jerusalem. It's known as Gehenna. You need to know that. Gehenna is not hell. Gehenna is known as a place of great destruction. Gehenna is known as a place uh, where child sacrifice and death took place. Uh, some of you have a copy of Jody Dillow's book, Final Destiny. I encourage you to read the two chapters that he has in there on the, on the subject of Gehenna, a very important subject that many Christians get wrong uh, and, and, and bring all kinds of crazy interpretations to it. But that's one passage right there where you would want to really pay attention to what's going on. Uh, one more passage to deal with that, Jeremiah 32, 35, if you want to 
understand about child sacrifice and that kind of thing that that Israel fell to this. Now, real quick before we wrap up, and we're not going to get to go through the whole thing, but real quick before we wrap up, if you will remember, if you think through, if you've ever read through Joshua, and man, Joshua was commissioned in chapter one. Don't be afraid. God's with you. Don't be afraid. God's with you. Take courage. Take heart. God's with you. God's with you. God's with you. You'd hope by then like we'd get it, right? But notice Joshua goes in and they start doing some great things. And if you remember the way that the walls of Jericho came down, very unconventional means, right? They weren't out there like polishing weapons. We got to buy all the ammo and that kind of thing. March around the city, blow the trumpet. Walls come down. Everybody go in. Spare Rahab. Deal with everybody else, Okay. Very, very strange thing. God's proving himself and God is showing. I'm the one who's giving you the victory. I'm the one who's making the walls come down. I'm the one who's doing this. So he's creating a track record of trust with them. And then around chapter eight or chapter nine, there's some guys that come from just over the hill, right? They're from Madison, you know, but nobody knows they're from Madison, right? They come in, they're all dressed differently. They're all trying to talk differently, look differently. Oh, yeah, we're from way far away. Look at our wineskins, how messed up they are. You know, just they destroyed them or whatever. They bought them at the local vintage shop, whatever you want to say. And they get it. Make a treaty with us. Make a pact with us. What did God tell them? You're not to make any agreement with anyone when you come to the land. Don't bind yourself because if you bind yourself, you've got to hold to your word. Don't hold to their word. Hold to my word. Destroy everything. Take no prisoners kind of idea. And so they do that. And it's very interesting to see because, in fact, Let's let's just turn to it. I'm a I'm a I'm a terrible storyteller. Let's just turn to it. Uh, let's see here. Look at chapter nine, Joshua nine. I want you to see some things. Um, chapter nine, verse three. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua. Uh, what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai. They also acted craftily. They sent out envoys and took worn out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumped. Man, these guys were theater degreed people. My, my wife would have loved them. Verse 6, they went to Joshua to the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we've come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. And the men of Israel said to the Hivites, because that's who they are, perhaps you're living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? Good question, right? Good question where it needs to be set. But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? And they said, Your servants have come from a far country because of the fame of Yahweh your Elohim, and we've heard the report of him. Notice they're trying to make it all up. What he did to Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, all people that we, we studied at the beginning of Deuteronomy. Uh, and and uh, who was at Ashtaroth? So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions in your hand for your journey. Go and meet them. Uh, We are your servants. Tell them. Make a covenant with us. This is our bread. Look how bad it is. All of our stuff, it's all crumbled. Look at our wineskins. They're so pitiful. Verse 14. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions. Makes you wonder why, because it was crumbly bread and terrible wine and wineskins, right? And did not ask for the counsel of Yahweh. Everybody see it? There's the problem. They didn't ask God's opinion. And what did they do? They entered into a contract with these people, a covenant. That right there was the fatal mistake that allowed for idolatry to fester and continue in that plagued Israel all the rest of their history. 
That's how you ended up burning children. It was from this one pivotal moment right here. They made an oath with them. We will not kill you. And they said, oh, by the way, we live over the hill. Can't do anything to us now. And because they didn't follow what God said, and they didn't seek God's face when they were questioning a situation, it's, it's a good reminder to us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will guide your path, period. It's a very good, good antidote. Any questions or thoughts? Thank you for being patient. All right, let's pray. God, I pray that we would learn from these mistakes, that we would see the seriousness of how you hold truth and goodness and righteousness in high regard, and that any wickedness and and, uh, detestable actions that are uh, against you. Father, how important it is that that we're um, we're not soured in our character about them, but we're willing to humbly and lovingly uphold the truth of your word, to take you at your word always. Uh, to not look to the right or to the left, but to be dead focused, dead set on uh, what you have out ahead. Um, Father, many times this world and the enemy is going to try to lead us astray. Give us minds to see, ears to hear, uh, that we would consult you in all things, that we would be humble and loving in our ways. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.